All right, well, thank you. Uh, We are continuing this morning in our study through the Psalms, and as I explained in the midweek email, we're going to be in Psalm 84 this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Um, uh, Spurgeon says, you know, there's a lot of different psalms that are noteworthy to Christians. Uh, He talks about Psalm 23 maybe being the best well-known of all the psalms, and other psalms being the most experimental, the most whatever, but he says that this is the sweetest of the Psalms of peace, Psalm 84. And so, hey, I'm not going to argue with Spurgeon. He's Spurgeon, right? That's, we're just going to go with that. But Psalm 84, to the choir master, according to the gitteth, I have no idea what a gitteth is. I assume it must have been a tune. A Psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Uh, Psalm 84 is a song of longings and longings that are satisfied in God. Starts in verse 2, it says, My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. And in verse 12, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is a song about longings and longings satisfied. Uh, I've been a parent now since, uh, I don't know what year Bowdoin was born, 18 years ago. (laughs) And over the course of those 18 years, I have lots of times had occasions when my kids would bring me little drawings that they have drawn, you know, the sort where it's just vaguely humanoid shapes (laughs) and swirling colors, and it's hard to make out what's going on. And sometimes what I've noticed is that kids will label every part of the drawing. Like once they learn how to write, they will write wolf over this swirl of color. (laughs) And they'll write mom over this stick figure and dad over this one. And This is the opposite of what great artists do. You don't ever tell little kids this, but uh, great art leaves it open to the viewer to kind of interpret, what am I looking at? What does it mean? Kids take all the interpretation out of it for you. This is mom, and this is dad, and we are standing here, and we are doing this. This is how they do it. Um, But what what the, Psalm 84 is great art. Uh, They use a lot of different imagery in here that they don't really explicitly tell us what it means. It's really left for us to kind of suss out the meaning. 
For example, in uh, verse 3, it says, Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Now, I know that this is symbolic imagery, because the altars is not a place where they would have allowed a bird to build a nest. (laughs) It's not. This would have been cleaned regularly, and it was not a place where a bird would want to build a nest because there's a lot of human activity at that place. So he's talking here in a symbolic way. It's a representative way, and it's really up for us to kind of figure out, well, what is being represented? What is being symbolized with that imagery? Uh, Ironically, guys, I'm not good at a lot of things. I will own that as true. I'm basically only good at four things. And I mean, like, I'm, I'm okay, at a, I'm competent in a lot of areas, but I mean good, like better than most humans. Do you want to hear what the areas I'm really good at? I am incredible at blowing my nose. I don't know, I can really clear a nostril. I mean, you give me a Kleenex and I can, one blast, it's out. I'm so good at it. I listen to these people blowing three, four times and I go, losers. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody can clear a nostril like me. I'm also really good at loading a dishwasher. Like, not okay. I'm, like, represent the U.S. and the Olympics good. Somewhere in the building, Sarah is saying, why don't you do it more then? And she, that's why I'll never make the Olympics. I'm not committed. (laughs) A third area I'm really good at, I think better than most people, is when I'm pumping gas, I can stop on the exact dollar amount, first release, $20, or more often like five. You know, I just got to get through to payday, just blah, blah, blah. (laughs) The fourth area, and I haven't had much practice at this in a great many years, but my job when I used to work at Camp Maranatha in Southern California, we had a huge metal tabernacle, big, big building, cavernous, like a big barn. And we would have problems because birds would get in there and start building nests, and then they would splatter on all the chairs and stuff. And so my boss would say, hey, we got a group coming in this weekend. I need you to go and shoot all the birds in the tabernacle. And I would go up there with a BB gun, and I mean, I wasn't good at it. I was excellent. I was really sharp with that BB gun. What was ironic was one time we had a group coming in. I think it was a group of like 200 Koreans from L.A. They were coming up, and... Um, We had had, it had been a while since we'd used that building, so my boss sent me up to do the dirty work, you know, (laughs) got to go and clean out all the birds, and I did, and uh, I I was taking them up an extension cord, I think, later, and he started to read the text that they were going to be studying, and it was this one, (laughs) even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, and I was like, you have no idea. (laughs) You don't know what was just going on here a short time ago. But I think a few things are being represented by the sparrows and the swallows by the psalmist in, in this psalm. And they are wonderfully emblematic of the experience of all believers who make their home in God. I think the smallness of the birds is really significant. They're really small creatures. might be tempted to think of them as not worthy of thought or mention. Also, these birds really need to find a safe place. And they're restless. They're homeless. 
And they're wild animals who come in and find a home with God in the temple. I think that this is probably something that actually happened in the temple. We're going to come back to the role of who wrote this psalm. The psalm is written by the sons of Korah. I want you to stick a bookmark in that. We're going to come back and explain the significance of that. But I think the sons of Korah would have been uniquely aware of the fact that birds were making a home in the temple. So let's look at each of these in turn. The first thought is that these are small birds. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? I think, I don't know this, I don't know that anybody's ever said this to me, but I have these kinds of thoughts, and so I'm willing to bet other people do also, uh, but I don't know, I don't have any stats, I'm just speaking anecdotally. I think some people might deny and reject the gospel precisely because they look out over the teeming masses of humanity, all the billions and billions of people not only alive today, but those who have lived all down through the ages. I've, I've even heard it said that of all the people that have ever lived, over 10% of them are alive today. It's kind of an amazing thought. If you think back down through the ages, all the eons, the thousands of years of human history, of all those people that have ever lived... Over 10% are alive right now. There's a ton of us on, on the planet right now. So they take in all those billions and billions of human beings, and they think to themselves something like, well, what is the value of one individual? Surely these Christians think a little too much of themselves that they think the almighty and eternal God will be interested in them. Just one of billions The cosmos is so big, so immense, and they're so small and seemingly insignificant. Isn't it pure, self-obsessed hubris to think that the God of the universe would take a special, special interest in Josh Tate? I know he's great at loading a dishwasher, but come on. Isn't that silly? Isn't that just self-obsessed hubris? However, the Bible is eager for us to see that although we are small, like a sparrow or a swallow, that God takes a very personal interest in you, you personally. Look at Psalm 139. These are the words of our God as sung through David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And verses 17 through 18 follow that, and they make the incredible claim that God's thoughts toward each of us individually, if they could be numbered, would outnumber the sand on the seashore. God's thoughts towards you individually, according to God, outnumber the sands on the seashore. In Luke 8.45, we, of course, this is a story, if you've been warming a pew for any span of time at all, you're probably familiar with the story of the woman who touches the hem of Jesus' garment and her flow of blood is healed. 
Uh, remember this, there's a throng of people, a great crowd of people, and Jesus is moving through the crowd, and all of a sudden he stops and says, who touched me? This is Luke 8, and it's a ridiculous thing to say because the crowd, it's like a mosh pit or something. They're just jostling against him. And who touched you, Jesus? Everybody's touching you. He says, no, 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 who touched me? <laughs> Meaning, of course, somebody touched me with faith. And the woman identifies herself, says it was your faith that healed you and, and all of that. But what I want you to see is that you may feel like one of a great crowd, insignificant, small, overlooked. But to God, no such is true. No such is true. And I think the swallow and the sparrow represent this thought, that you are special. His thoughts towards you are like the sand on the seashore. He loves you, you individually. I also think here that what the psalmist is symbolizing with this sparrow and the swallow, and by the way, I personally, there's different ways to interpret this. I don't think the sparrow and the swallow represent two different things. I tend to think they're both sort of representing the same concepts. Um, some people try to parse it out that way, and I, I just didn't see much validity in it. But I, I think that one of the things that's clearly being presented here is that they have found a place where they're safe. They're safe. Um, and we see in verse 11, for example, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. It says in, in that uh, portion there near verse 3 that the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. She may lay her young. Um, I think probably the most precious possession of a bird is its eggs. Uh, if, if you've ever studied where birds build their nests, they try to build them in a place that's safe. They build them on a cliff. They build them way up in a tree. They build them under the eaves of a building. This is why they're so uh, annoying sometimes, because they tend to build their nests in places where humans don't want them. But for them, it's very safe, in an attic, for example, or in a tabernacle in Southern California. Um, so the bird, I think, again, some people see in this the thought of bringing your family into the church, like uh, Christian parents. You should build your nests on the altar, as it were. You should bring your children into the safe place of the church. I don't think that's actually what's being represented here. I don't think. Again, isn't it fun? We can all interact with this psalm, and, and maybe that's a true thought. That certainly is a true thought. We had our baby dedications last Sunday. That would have been a great thought to bring to bear at that time. But here's what I think this psalm, this, this thought is meant to communicate to us. The most precious thing to a bird is its young, its, its eggs. What is the most precious thing to a human being? I would say it's our soul. I would say it's our soul. Mark 8, 36 through 37, I think, makes this statement very explicitly. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Is there anything I have that is of greater value than my soul? Where can I put my soul where it will be safe? This is really the question, I think, that 
we are meant to ponder as we look at the bird trying to find a safe place for its nest. Consider again the places that birds build their nests for the purpose of protecting their young. Where can we put our soul where it will be safe and away from the reach of the one who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour? Uh, We started with the observation that sparrows and swallows are small. They're vulnerable. They're defenseless. And this naturally leads us Uh, to thinking about the fact that there are great and powerful things that are trying to hunt us down, as it were. Uh, That is the biblical imagery um, where it says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You're being hunted. Have you ever watched birds on the lawn? Uh, they, if you ever like watch from a window, you're drinking coffee, the birds come down and settle on the lawn, they are very skittish, aren't they? They're just pecking around in the grass, but any strange noise, any sudden movement, you open a door, there's a car horn that honks, anything, up into the trees. A few minutes later, they'll kind of nervously settle back down and they start pecking again. But again, anything will set them all of a sudden up into the trees. It plays out again and again and again over the course of a day. Birds are always on the alert for cats, for hawks, for enemies real and imagined. The slightest movement or the strange sound comes in and they all take off and fly for cover. I think um, one of the great benefits of the cats of this world, and by that I mean the scary things, the things that are difficult, is that they pull back the curtain of this world and reveal it for what it is. I think as human beings, we're always so tempted to fall in love with the world. And then along comes cancer. Along comes the death of a loved one. Along comes unemployment. Along comes a season of horrible depression. Along comes this, that, or the other. I mean, we could keep listing forever the calamities that we personally are familiar with and have brushed up against. These are cats. And one of the great benefits of these cats is they pull back the curtain, they reveal this world for what it is. This is no place to invest my soul. This is not a safe place. I'm hunted here. I'm constantly on the run. I'm looking over my shoulder. I'm worried. I'm anxious. This is not a place where I, it is safe to bring that which is most precious and leave it here. I mean, how tragic is it to look at a human being who has poured their soul into this world? It's like a bird that has misguidedly built its nest on railroad tracks or something. I mean, it's just like, ooh, that's not going to end well. And we kind of get this sense, don't we, that when the psalmist is saying that the, the swallow and the sparrow have built their nest, they've brought their young onto the altars, they've found a safe place, a safe place. And it really raises the question, where have you laid up your soul? Where, where is the soul of Josh Tate laid up? Is it in a safe place? 
Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. John 10.28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a list of cats that is before it says will be able to separate us, totally safe from all those cats that come before. I want to talk in just a minute about what it means to put your soul in a safe place. We'll come back to that, stick a bookmark in it. Or maybe we can just dive into it right here. Because the third thing I want us to see about these birds is that they are wild creatures. They are restless and homeless. St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in, in you. He said thee, according to my quote, but I, I, don't, I don't like saying thee. <laughs> our hearts are restless until they rest in you, speaking to God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself. And where is that home? Well, it says it's at your altars. The altars would be a terrible place, as I already pointed out, in reality, for a bird to make its nest. It's a place that is kept clean. It's a place that's the site of a lot of human activity. But what I think is being represented, what is the altar? The altar is the place where the sacrificial offerings were made for sin. And so the psalmist is saying, make your home in God's grace. Make your home in the God who takes away sin. Bake your home there. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, this is Jesus speaking, and don't you just love that this is how God talks to us? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is where the God of Christianity parts company with all the other gods. Jesus doesn't say, come to me, I've got a long list. <laughs> come to me, I have hoops for you to jump through. Come to me and prove yourself. Come to me and do this, that, and the other. Come to me, I will burden you. You can prove yourself worthy. He says, come to me, and I will give you rest. I've already done it. Come and rest in the finished work that I have done. Come and make your home on the altars. The sacrificial altars are our home, Jesus. He is our sacrifice. God's desire, so often expressed and repeated in the Old Testament, was that he intended to make his dwelling place among his people. In Ezekiel 37, 27, for example, God says, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Properly understood, verses like these are not saying that God wants to move in with us so much as he wants us to make our home in him. In Jeremiah, God uses the analogy of an animal's homing instinct to very movingly describe the souls of men and women which have been made to home in on God like migrating birds. 
behaving unnaturally and tragically confused by moving away from him instead. God says, even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow and crane keep the time of their coming, but my people know not the rules of the Lord. It's like even these birds know where to go and when to go, but you are horribly confused. You move away from me rather than toward me. I think the uh, sensation of finding my way home to God must feel a lot like what it feels like for a migrating salmon to nose its way back upstream or for a bird to find its way back to where it had nested the year before. Human beings flew away from God. And the amazing thing of the gospel is God is saying, come home, come home. Come make your home here again. And I think that the experience that Christians have in finding their way back home to God, though we are small and wild and homeless and restless, we come winging our way, tired, back into the hands of the God who says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Your wings are exhausted. (laughs) You've been flying, beating your way through the storms. Come and roost. Make a nest here, home, in me is a lot like the feeling of assurance that must come over those wild creatures when they, this stream is right. This is where I spawned long ago. My homing instinct for God locks in on this language that Jesus uses, describing heaven as God, coming home, rest. And as the old saying goes, there's no place like home. Anyone who matures very far in Christ will begin to feel that they are misfits here on the earth. But whether or not a person is a misfit depends very much on what someone is supposed to fit. And God is making misfits of us here because he is fitting us for somewhere else, heaven. The place our souls long for and that this world keeps failing to be for us will be found ultimately in heaven. Heaven is returning home, and we understand the joy behind the words that David sang in Psalm 23, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think my deepest experiences in worship have felt a lot like homesickness. I'm just sick for my home. Don't you feel a little homesick when you read Psalm 84? or when Jesus speaks about coming to get us and taking us home. Uh, I really love these thoughts out of Psalm 84, and I think they really are emblematic of the entire Christian experience. Uh, If you have a soul and you wanna put it in a safe place, let me just take a moment. I, I never know who I'm talking to, and if you've been a Christian for a long time, I know you never bore of hearing the salvation plan. And maybe right now there's somebody with us who's never heard it before ever or never truly grasped it. And so let me just put it very plainly. We're all sinners. Uh, The church is not a community of good people. We're not (laughs) do-gooders. We're not, um, we, we, we understand who we are, by and large. I can't speak for everyone. But what the gospel trains us to do, the gospel being the good news of how God plans to save sinners like all of us, is it trains us away from any idea that we can get there in our own merits. 
I'm not a good guy. None of you are good people. I've been waiting to say that a long time. You're, you're, a, you're a horrible group of people, State Road. <laughs> Truly to the core, depraved. But here's the truth. Uh, we're all sinners, and so that means we are all deeply needy in the presence of God. We come to God with our hands empty, our pockets empty. God, I have nothing, nothing that I can offer you to earn what, what is needed. I don't have it. I'm desperate. I'm poor. When we talk through the Beatitudes and blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who live with a needy reliance on God. This is the true for everyone who is truly a Christian. They don't walk around going, man, I'm, a, I'm one of the good ones. They go, God is perfect and I'm amazed at his grace because I'm far from it. So that's where we start. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. (laughs) A wage is something you earn. God, don't give me what I deserve. (laughs) Don't give me what I've worked so hard for. Don't give me, please, God, don't give me what I've earned. No, I want a gift. I want a gift that I don't deserve. I want a gift that's rooted in how good and excellent you are, not a reflection of what I should get. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, to come back to that thought that none of us are good, Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I always like to use the analogy. I was listening to the comedian Jerry Seinfeld once, and he was explaining that when he first, when he started to get successful, he hired a maid to come clean his apartment. And he said what was really ironic was, I knew this maid was coming over to clean the apartment, so I cleaned the place top to bottom. I was so embarrassed about all of the dirty, icky corners of his house. I was like, oh, I can't let her see that. I'll clean this up. (laughs) He cleaned his house for the housekeeper that was going to be coming in. And I think a lot of Christians view their souls in much the same way. They think, oh, man, before I really get serious with Jesus, i got to clean some stuff up. You know, before I can ever become a Christian, I need to clean up my act. I need to stop doing this or that. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You you can never get there. That is an ever-retreating horizon. You just need to open the books. Again, we bring God nothing but our need. He's not impressed. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags to him, the Bible says. Romans 10.9, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hey, you can do that today. This is a wonderful truth. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what Christians have been proclaiming all down through the ages. And this is the safe place where you can lay up your soul. This is that safe place where it says that those who are in my hand will never be snatched away, Jesus says. If you come to Jesus on this basis, I'm not good, God. I need a Savior. That's safe. That's safe. 
Uh, the classic analogy in the history of Christianity, I've done it before from this pulpit, forgive me again for being so repetitious, is the mirror. A mirror is a great tool for telling you how you look, telling you you're dirty. But can a mirror clean you? No. In fact, if you took the mirror and tried to clean yourself with it, you'd only get the mirror dirty. And this is, the true, this is true with the Word of God. The Word of God, all the do's in here, all the do-nots in here, those are meant to show you how seriously wrong your condition is. When I come to the Bible and I say, and it says, do this, and I go, oh, I don't do that, at least not very often. I think I might have done it once in 1993. <laughs> and then I go to all those ones where it says, do not do this, and I go, oh, I definitely do that. Did it yesterday, <laughs> you know, whatever the case may be. Um, this is meant, as you look at it, to say, well, I need help. I'm a, I'm a sinner. I have fallen short of the glory of God. A mirror tells you, you need a shower, in the same way the Bible tells you, you need a savior. But many people get it mixed up where they think, I will be saved by doing all the do's and by not doing all the do nots. And that is just as ridiculous as trying to clean yourself up with a mirror. You cannot clean yourself up by law keeping. You don't need to be a better human being. You need one who is perfect. You need Jesus. The problem with a lot of people in the world today is not their badness. It's their goodness that is not good enough. They think I'm basically a good person. But that's not good enough. Again, the floor of a I say again because those who have attend State Road regularly have heard this. The floor of a dumpster and the seat of a toilet, one may be objectively cleaner than the other, but you're not eating off of either. True? I, I think there are some human beings who live more lives that are more uh, morally upright and virtuous than others. They are objectively more righteous but they are not good enough. This is the message of the Bible. We don't need to clean ourselves up. We need one who is perfectly clean, Jesus, to take our place under God's wrath. This is the gospel. Okay, real quick, let me finish with this. Of the 150 Psalms recorded in our, in our Bibles, just 11 of them were written by the sons of Korah. And Psalm 84, our psalm for this morning, is one of them. Who were the sons of Korah? I think this whole psalm is wonderfully emblematic of the Christian experience, of what it is to be a Christian. And we did not have time to even, I basically just spent time with verses three and four to the neglect of a whole lot of other wonderful verses we could come back to. But who were the sons of Korah? I think this is a, a point worth dwelling upon as we close out our time together. For starters, they were descendants of Levi. And that, that clears everything up, right? <laughs> no. uh, that instantly invites another question, who is Levi? And if you're kind of a Bible buff, you might already know this stuff, but chances are good most of us don't have the facts memorized. So indulge me here with a brief Bible lesson. I promise I'll bring this around to a point in short order. 
the Old Testament patriarch Jacob, he was the grandson of Abraham, whose name was later changed by God to Israel. He had 12 sons. And hundreds of years later, when the Israelites left Egypt and they finally went to take possession of the promised land, the descendants of those 12 sons had formed different tribes. And each of those tribes were given an allotment of land, of the promised land, as an inheritance. Well, actually, nearly all of them were given land. There was one exception. The descendants of one of the sons, Levi, he was the third oldest, were not given any land as an inheritance at all, but rather they inherited responsibility for God's temple and public worship. Uh, this was God's decision. The Levites did not have a say in the matter. They were just told, this is how it's going to be. And the Levites went, oh, okay. <laughs> That's how I imagine it went down, don't you think? Joshua 13, 14, to the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to him. The descendants of Levi would serve among the people and in the tabernacle and then later in the temple and would receive their support, not from the land they had inherited, but from the offerings that the people made. Levi, in turn, had three sons, Gershon, Merari, and Kohath. And these three had children of their own. And from there, this family tree spreads and leafs out into a dizzyingly complex list of names. And each successive branch of the family were assigned differing areas of responsibility in public worship. As Levites, this was their source of livelihood as well as a sacred responsibility. This is all fascinating stuff, isn't it? You guys are with me? Okay. Korah, remember this is the Psalm 84 was written by the sons of Korah. He was a grandson of Kohath. That would make him a great-grandson of Levi. And he was a contemporary of Moses. In fact, Numbers 16 tells us the story of a time when Korah and about 250, we'll call them co-conspirators, other leaders among the people of Israel, tried to basically stage a coup against Moses' authority. They kind of rose up. Korah, 250 other prominent leaders, they came to Moses and they said, we're, we're the captain now. <laughs> we're going to take over. Within the Levites, the Kohathites, which would have included Korah and his family, had been given all the lowliest and most menial assignments in temple duty. If something had to be carried from campsite to campsite, that was their service. They cleaned stuff. They maintained things. Korah demanded that he and others should be granted more prominent leadership roles and high priestly duties. Korah was bitter from being passed over, and he was tired of doing all the thankless, behind-the-scenes grunt work. Moses, in a, a moment of, uh, I think, Holy Spirit, God-inspired genius, says, well, come back with all the trappings of a priest, and we'll see if God will let you do it. <laughs> God's judgment against Korah was swift and terrifying. The Most High God caused the ground beneath Korah and the leaders of the rebellion to open up 
swallow them, and then close up again. I imagine kind of like in Star Wars where he goes down into the, remember, never mind, okay. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Fire then came out from the Lord and consumed the remaining 250 men engaged in this defiance towards God. However, God did preserve the line of Korah. Despite Korah's sin and rebellion, his descendants were continued on and they were graciously used in service to God in the years to come. In fact, the prophet Samuel was a son of Korah. In 1 Chronicles 25, we are told that the sons of Korah were assigned to be gatekeepers in the temple. Their responsibilities would have been opening up the temple in the morning, locking it again at night. They they maintained the storerooms where items necessary for worship were kept. So if something was torn, they made sure it got patched up. If something broke, it was their job to fix it. They provided kind of a security function. They kept an eye out to prevent people from wandering into portions of the temple where they shouldn't go. If you've ever been to an art museum, imagine those people who are standing there making sure you don't go too close to the piece. That was their job. They watched. They would have been also the guys responsible for taking care of any maintenance or custodial needs that arose at the temple complex, like if birds were pooping somewhere. Or like if you came to the temple with your kids and one of them threw up. The sons of Korah would have wheeled out the bucket probably or something like that. I don't know how they handled that, but that was kind of their job. They were very much like those quiet, humble, behind-the-scenes servants that form the backbone of nearly every church today. And Psalm 84 was written by those guys, the sons of Korah. The descendants of the man who said, I want a more prominent, visible place. (laughs) These are behind-the-scenes servants who serve with excellence. And this, again, is wonderfully emblematic of the whole psalm and what it is to find our way home to God, the experience of a Christian. This information about the authors of the psalm lends beauty and a deeper meaning to some of the lines that we find there. Like verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper, say the sons of Korah. I would rather be a doorkeeper (laughs) in the house of my God than be like my ancestor Korah. Well, that's not what they say. Than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I embrace my status as a small, insignificant follower of God. I'm a sparrow. I found a home. My soul is safe in his hands, on his altars. My my soul is safely laid up in the hands of a God who takes away sin, who doesn't give me what I deserve, but deals with me graciously. This is a song of servants. It's a song for servants. They yearn for God's house, not because they are separated from it, but because that is where they are and that is where they want to be. This is a song of longings that have been satisfied in God. This is a song of men who 
cheerfully embrace a behind-the-scenes role because God is the main character. I, I really believe that, especially in, the, in our generation today, that there is a main character problem. Everyone views themselves as the center of an unfolding drama at which they're the center, it seems. Not so the sons of Korah. God is the main show. And so they are able to say, I am just so thrilled to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. As new creation and children of God, one of the things we can learn from the sons of Korah is that we do not have to walk in the sins of our past. We don't have to walk in that. That does not define us. We can move on from that. We can be freed and victorious. And we, and we do not have to be defined by the sins of our family of origin. As the, it's amazing to me that they still identify themselves with Korah. <laughs> this is a psalm of the sons of Korah, the great evil wicked man who's famous in the Old Testament for this act of wickedness. And yet they say we're the sons of Korah. I think you can only say that if you have embraced a God who is going to set your family in a new trajectory. He's a God of grace. He's a God who redeems. We can begin a new tradition of following God in our families today that makes a break from the wickedness and brokenness of past generations in our family of origin. That does not have to play out generation by generation. And lastly, the thing we see here in the sons of Korah is that obedience in the small tasks matters to God. Moses, in his confrontation with Korah, this is number 16.9, he says to Korah, is it too small a thing for you, what God has given you to do? Is it too small a thing for you? God's math is not the same as ours. It just isn't. He looks at the widow's might and he says, she gave more money than that guy. <laughs> and I'm willing to bet that there are people who serve in incredibly humble, behind-the-scenes ways, stuff we don't even know about or appreciate, but God looks at the spirit with which they did it and says, that person did more than Josh Tate did in a Sunday morning service with what he had to say. I believe that wholeheartedly. In God's economy of values, there are rewards coming for those who serve in humble, out-of-sight ways. And the Sons of Korah is an encouragement to continue in our prayer ministry. It's an encouragement to continue in all the small things that you do, State Road. All those behind-the-scenes ways that you serve and bless others. God is concerned more with the heart of service than the prominence of it. And that is a wonderful thing to be encouraged by as we close out this time in our study of Psalm 84. Let me pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for Psalm 84. We thank you for the sparrows and the swallows. We thank you for the sons of Korah for their challenging example to us. God, we thank you that you're a redeemer, God, who takes what's wrong and you make it right. You take what's broken, you make it whole. You take what's twisted, you make it straight. You take Korah, and you make the sons of Korah. Father, you've done that in each of our lives individually. Uh, you, you have done it, and you are doing it. 
God, you have made us right by virtue of what Jesus did for us, and you are making us slowly by degrees more and more like the God who saved us. Father, we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for looking upon us, though we are small and insignificant like a sparrow. We thank you, Lord, that when we were homeless, you gave us a home on the altars of Jesus. Father, we give you thanks for the safe place that you have shown us to lay up our souls. God, we have nothing of greater value. And God, uh, I, I just pray, Lord, that anybody who has spent time with us this morning in Psalm 84, if they have not put their soul there in the safety of Jesus' hands, God, that they would realize the peril of where they've built their nest and that they would come to him who, who says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I wanna give you rest. Come make your home in me. Father, thank you for Psalm 84, thank you for the example of the sons of Korah and for their words that you gave them to share with us. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name, amen.